It's Fundamental Podcast is brought to you by MTU and WIT in conjunction with the Funds Academy. Okay, uh, you're very welcome everyone and a particular warm welcome to uh, Owen uh, Walker uh, from the uh, Financial Times. Uh, Owen, I suppose, uh, I suppose most recently he's written the book on the Woodford collapse, uh, it's Built on a Lie, The Rise and Fall of Neil Woodford and the Fate of uh, uh, Middle England's Money. Um, but I suppose just by way of a, a bit of a background to uh, introduce Owen, um, he's, uh, he, was, he went to uh, the University of Nottingham and uh, did a BA in English Studies and then uh, took himself over to Wales to Cardiff University to a uh, postgraduate diploma in newspaper journalism. Um, I guess then probably into, from, from a journalism perspective, started off the New Statesman and then uh, into the FT uh, a, a good number of years ago, he's got tons of experience um, uh, with various uh, affiliates of the uh, of the FT, and then I, I suppose the most recent, more recent years, um, was the asset man- management correspondent uh, with the FT, uh, and then uh, in in current times is the European banking correspondent with the FT, and I, uh, and I suppose in recent days has been uh, writing about the comings and goings in Credit Suisse, uh, more the goings rather than the comings, it should be said, and um, <laughs> it's. Uh, I, I, I suppose uh, COVID is still uh, looming large and uh, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, I suppose, fallout in the European banking system uh, because of some activities of one or two individuals, um, as well as uh, his most recent uh, publication and book on Built on a Lie. Uh, he's also uh, written uh, another uh, tome on uh, called Barbarians in the Boardroom, which is on activist investors, which I think would also have a, a lot of resonance with, with our audience. Uh, given that, that there would be a number of investment funds that would be um, bankrolling some of these activist investors as well. Uh, I, I, the, the, I suppose the, the topic today that we want to really kind of uh, look at is uh, the uh, Neil Woodford collapse, uh, the Woodford asset management collapse. But before we get into the, I suppose, the meat of the discussion as such, um, I, I wonder, Owen, if you could kind of give us uh, kind of a sense of, you know, how do you get into, how did you fall into this uh, career in, in financial journalism, uh, having started out maybe doing English studies, although it's not a million miles away from, uh, from journalism? Great. Um, yeah, thanks. Well, thanks firstly for having me on uh, today and, and letting me uh, talk and waffle on for a little bit. <laughs> um, uh, and and you, you gave a very sort of fulsome uh, overview of my of my CV. Um, so, you know, so, so I, I did English. I was, I was like a lot of people. I kind of uh, didn't really know what to do when I went to university. I, 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 I like reading. I like sort of English things and uh, I was quite good at it. So I end up doing that. Um, and then at university, I kind of got involved with the school, the um, university newspaper, um, and then decided I, I wanted to pursue a, a career in journalism. Did the, the postgraduate course, uh, and and whilst doing the course, I um, which was very much geared at, at working in the local press, mm-hmm. uh, regional press, and then kind of maybe working your way up to the nationals if if that's what you wanted to do. Um, but whilst there, I was working at the the South Wales Argus in in uh, Newport and uh, did some work experience and in, in my uh, week there i managed to to land this this story that um that donald trump this was before he was way before he was had any presidential ambitions uh was looking to buy a patch of uh land you know fairly dilapidated farm buildings and and just open fields which just happened to be right next to the um, the famed celtic manor golf course um 
And of course, you know, he'd done the same thing in, in St. Andrews in Scotland, buying, setting up golf courses next to famous Lynx golf courses there. Uh, and this, this was quite a big story. I mean, he didn't end up doing it in the end, but uh, it was quite a big story at the, at the time. And um, being involved in that story, it really kind of got my my mindset on business journalism and finance journalism. I just thought it was very fascinating area you know lots of sort of big in that story in particular lots of big personalities you know mm. big numbers um but then there's kind of real uh, life uh, implications certainly for the people in in that area who at one point thought there was going to be this another huge golf course arriving and maybe helicopter pads and all this sort of stuff and it didn't end up happening in the end um and there was clearly some some local backlash there um so on the back of that i i kind of started looking uh, a bit further afield and i end up um getting a job at um, one of the FT trade publications writing out pensions and then um, yeah ever since then I've kind of been in working at the FT in various uh, guises and forms and, and uh, covering finance uh, investments asset management pensions uh, and, then, and then most recently banking um, so uh, yeah that's kind of been my um, my career to date. Yeah, that that's really interesting. On, I mean, I suppose if we and we 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 will have some students listening to this, and it's, uh, I suppose it's great to see like the power of work experience and Absolutely. how it really kind of, um, uh, I suppose, molded your career and set you on a on a particular path. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly, I suppose, in recent times, work experience as part of university curriculum have become much more uh, mainstream. Um, I suppose then maybe to move things on a little bit then um, to kind of to look more closely at Woodford and so on. How did the story fall into your lap? How did this come to in, in, into your interest as such? Well, I, so by about 2019, which is when the, the story really kind of broke open. Um, at that point, I, you know, as, as I said, I've been covering uh, investments um uh in one form or other for for about a decade at the ft um and at that point i was the asset management correspondent so my my job was to cover the um the mainly the european um and and british and big asset management companies a lot of them clearly based in in the city in london so um i spent a lot of um you know, my interest was tended to be some of the bigger companies, uh, you know, many of whom have have, uh, have set up shop in, uh, in Ireland in recent years. Um, it was always a fascinating character because he had worked for one of the big, uh, in fact, by the time he left, it was US-owned Invesco Perpetual, mm-hmm. one of the biggest investment companies in the world. But he had gone off in 2014 to set up by himself. And he, he, he is a very famous fund manager. He, he'd written off his own name uh, and did very successfully with that venture. And so I kind of followed his story uh, a little bit um, uh, as it launched. Uh, when it launched in 2014, I happened to be in New York. So I wasn't that close to, to the action at the time. But it was, a, it was incredibly, um, there was an awful lot of buzz around the launch. Lots of people were interested in this story. Journalists were looking for, you know, what, what the fund would be invested in, who was going to be backing it. It was it was actually the most successful launch of a new uh, fund, fund management venture, I think, ever in, in the UK. Mm. Um, so but by the time I was kind of covering him uh, more closely, his he had had the boom years, first two or three years of Woodford Investment Management being set up. By about 2017 onwards, it was really a, a story of decline. And, and that just happened to coincide when when I had the job of, of covering him. Um, and, and, and as that, that, that decline steepened and, and, uh, and, and it got worse and worse, by about 2019, um, I did a story with a colleague uh, in, in late April where we we just kind of set out the fact that there was the fun was in 
terminal decline really it had lost um about a third of its value in in just a month or so uh through a combination of 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 clients withdrawing their money but also just really poor performance and um this alarming decline alerted, uh, had had alerted the the financial regulator the, the financial conduct authority and they were in, they were in contact with woodford investment management about this and they were very concerned so it's kind of really spelled that out in one story and it's the first time people had heard about mm-hmm. the regulators concern here and it was, it was a big story it was you know front page of the ft everyone else picked it up um and then uh, the following day uh kent county council pension fund which is the the last big uh, client of his um asked for their money back they were very stories they asked for their money back and that really uh woodford by this point didn't have the the, the, the liquid funds Kent in the time they demanded it and that really caused a suspension of the fund close and that was very much the the uh, the story um that developed all right and I suppose did do you have any sense that was it your story that prompted Kent uh, County Council to to withdraw or uh were they already kind of uh of that mindset before uh, your story got published they um so as having researched this extensively afterwards and spoken to lots of people involved they uh had intended to um withdraw their money they had 256 million i believe in mm-hmm. in, in the fund it's about 3.7 closed of uh, so about eight percent they intended to pull their money out and they'd given woodford warning they were going to at the following uh committee meeting which was i think about in june so about a month or so later um, so Woodford was expecting this money to go out. Um, he did have a plan in place that um, because he because uh, by, by the time this had happened, he'd had to sell a lot of his big FTSE 100 companies, the very liquid stocks he owned. And he was left with an awful lot of very illiquid private companies, small companies. There was very uh, limited appetite for them to buy them in the market. So um, he did have a plan to be able to sell bits and pieces off and be able to pay Kent back at fund going. However, um, as I understand it, uh, you know, there was a committee meeting the very day after our story broke. And, and this was the, the kind of the main topic of discussion mm-hmm. that they kind of got spooked by this, um, the, the regulators interest in the fund, uh, the alarming rate at, at uh, its loss. And, and they thought that they they might be in a position where if this continued, if they waited another month, by that point, the fund would spend it. Mm-hmm. They would have been trapped in the fund anyway. So they wanted to act first. They made a decision at that meeting to pull their their uh, allocation, which very much caught Woodford by surprise. Mm. Over the weekend, Woodford and his team then came up with a plan of how they would deal with that. And uh, and not to get too technical about it, but they, they were looking for a stage withdrawal. So they'd pay the money back over a period of time. But on, on the Monday morning, uh, the individual at the, the council who had been involved in those discussions happened to be on holiday. His stand-in um, <laughs> put the wrong request into the authorised corporate director. And I'm sure we'll get onto these. It's Link is a kind of a funny administrator in the middle. They passed on the, the message without sort of thinking about what it might mean that they wanted their money back all in one go. That message got put through to, to Woodford and they were told they had to spend the fund. So it, it, at the end, it was a real mix up and mix up of communication people mm. really kind of sticking by the books and not thinking um out of the box um to an extent but um yeah unfortunately our, our story was was what motivated that uh, that decision 
It's really interesting. And I think where we've gotten to there is almost at the end when Kent pulled out, etc. But just to move it back a little bit, there were obviously a number of instances of practices within the fund that could be considered questionable that got them to that point where all of the investors were withdrawing. And I just wanted to ask you, in terms of the extent to which the oversight mechanisms failed the investors, you know, in this instance, where does the responsibility rest? And, you know, those who perform the activities and those who were charged with the oversight, what well, I, I, what went wrong? And I've I've thought about it a lot, and I've been asked about. It, and we've talked about it, uh, what went wrong. Mm. Um, if this was just a, a case of Neil Woodford um, taking some strange decisions, being a bit too creative in in his approach to things, uh, and that was the only issue, uh, then then what happened would never have happened. Mm-hmm. The fund wouldn't have failed. It wouldn't have been the biggest um, uh, fund management scandal in the UK for a decade. What actually happened was um, Woodford was the end piece in a long chain and each link in that chain failed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we can talk about the kind of what the decisions that he made and, and the questionable activities, but essentially came up with these um, uh, the, these strange strategies to get himself out of, of, of these uh, the, these sort of tight holes that he well, basically these binds that he'd created for himself. Mm-hmm. There was no one within his fund management company. It's a very small business. He he ruled the roost. It was his name on the door. There was no one within there. There wasn't a challenge culture. There wasn't an environment where people were saying to him, you can't do this. There wasn't a strong compliance function within that business for people to say, okay, we may be strictly within the rules, but this isn't this isn't how we should be doing. We should be communicating this more thoroughly. We should be thinking about the wider implications of this. Um, so the the company carried through these instructions the next layer the next link up on the train um, is actually a company called link the authorized corporate director now these are um you know as i'm sure you, you talk about in in the course this is a strange um uh, kind of administrative role which isn't known about it's barely known about within the fund management industry it's certainly not known about outside and they act um you know from a legal perspective certainly under uh, you know the, 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 from a legal perspective they act as the the fund manager even though the portfolio manager the person organizing where the money goes is is in this case neil woodford or or, or the equivalent the authorized corporate director is the legal entity which um, effectively plays the regulatory role. So they communicate with with the regulator. They communicate with uh, various people like the custodians and, and, and those sorts of things. But they also have um, a role in ensuring that the end investors are properly protected. So this company, which happens to be called Link, uh, they used to be part of a, a, the outsourcing group um, Capita, they provide that link between everyone else. They're almost like the, the spoke in the middle of the wheel. So mm-hmm. that they, they are a very central character in all this. And um, as, it, I, as I've had it described to me, but people who know this uh, part of the industry much better, um, this was the wrong organization for, for Woodford Investment Management. Woodford Investment Management, under Neil Woodford, wanted to do very sort of complex, interesting, um, quite challenging um, maneuvers. Mm-hmm. And in order to have that situation, you needed to have an ACD who could firstly stand up to to him, but also to to sort of very make it claim, make make it quite plain that if we're going to do this, though it may be within the letter of the law, this isn't this isn't fair game. This mm-hmm. isn't the, how we should be doing things. But they were very much a tick box um, sort of company, and. As we saw with with the example with when Kent looked to redeem their their 256 million, 
they they played by they, they said came in it, it, it fits this form we'll sign the form and we'll send it off without actually thinking about the wider compl- uh, the wider implications mm-hmm. so that was linked to this and so they, they kind of allowed some of this activity to happen when clearly uh you know looking objectively and with hindsight it, it, it was very bad bad moves and then finally at the very end of this chain you have the the regulator in this in this instance the financial conduct authority now uh the fca had um uh, yeah it's it it's got thousands of investment funds to oversee in the UK. Uh, it, it's a small organisation. It's not just the investment industry that it looks after. It is all the financial services. So for what for the job they have to do, they are very under-resourced. Mm. Um, so they outsource a lot of, of, of that kind of oversight to these authorised corporate directors. Yeah. Um, so that is a bit of a flaw in the system. To the extent to which they outsource it to these these uh, companies but also as my reporting has shown and and, and also in um, some of the investigations by by the uk parliament's treasury select committee ha- has uh, uncovered the regulator was given countless red flags warnings uh, as my my reporting shows right from uh 2014 from when woodford's business was first set up the problems that existed in that organization um, that led to the outcomes we we saw five years later um but they ignored them they were mm-hmm. passed the wrong part of the organization they weren't followed up upon and um it really did show a, a, a quite dysfunctional um siloed organization that it really isn't capable of uh of regulating uh, small uh, well a, a very large industry uh, of very different kind of types of companies oh, that's very interesting um and has there been any kind of longer term fallout then on the fca uh, as a result of this have they had to kind of change their approach to regulation um uh, the thing with the fca is uh it, it's a very slow moving organization i mean you know clearly they can't be seen to be um reacting uh too quickly to things they need to consider things but we're coming up to um it's not far off the the third anniversary of of the woodford fund um of of, of the scandal starting effectively mm. when, when the funds were suspended um the the financial conduct authority is still investigating what went on you know I investigated it. I published a book. That book came out nearly a year ago. So if I could do that, and there's just one of me, why is the FCA still investigating what went on? And, and they would have, you know, far more resources and far more ability to extract documents and, and all sorts of things than, than I would. Um, they uh, have yet to produce their their report into what went wrong. Mm. Just last week, the UK's Treasury Select Committee, the head of the Select Committee, um, sent a, a, a quite um, pointed letter to the head of the SCA saying um, this this is getting on for it's two and a half years, nearly three years since this broke. We're still waiting for your uh, report to come out. Uh, we've, we've, we've warned you uh, several times we'd like this to happen as soon as you can. You previously said it would be the end of last year. You previously said it would be earlier than that. Um, You've told us you're in the final stages. Please hurry up. There is urgency here. There is there is big public interest in getting the information out there, mm-hmm. um, and um, the FCA still clearly haven't haven't uh, haven't come out with their report. So it's a very sluggish, very slow moving organisation. Um, 
there's a new person at the top. The, the, the previous head of the FCA, Andrew Bailey, is now governor of the Bank of England. He got a lot of flack over this issue when it first emerged. Um, and within a, a few months, he, he became uh, governor of the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's left his predecessor to, to kind of pick up the pieces here. Um, but we're unlikely to see any regulatory response or any changes in, in, in how the industry is set out until we get that report. There's a lot of interest in that report. Um, and so hopefully we're not too far away now, but we have been saying that for, for the best part of three years. Yeah. So, so John mentioned the fallout there from a regulatory perspective, but let's talk about the fallout from an individual perspective. So I think there is a narrative out there that when a fund collapses, it'll just impact on a number of rich people and we shouldn't feel too sorry for them. However, that isn't the case in this instance. So can you convey the real impact that that's had on investors? Who are the mythical investors and what's been the social cost, particularly in in respect of the pension funds, etc.? Absolutely. So, So the Woodford Fund, I mean, this was one of the most popular um, funds in the UK. It was, um, it was, uh, it was uh, at its height, it it was just shy of of 10 billion, which is a very large fund. Mm. I mean, it's not the largest, but it was very large, especially especially for an active fund. It was, it was, it was big. Um, But what's, what's more important about the fund is just the number of people who invested in it. So we don't, we've never, uh, Woodford has never revealed, and there's no reason why he necessarily should do, but never revealed the the number of people who were invested in this fund. Though the, the best um, uh, numbers we have, we know it's at least 300,000. And my, my estimate would be closer to 400,000. Wow. So that's three or 400,000 people in the UK. That's that's a very large proportion of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just to kind of set that in context, um, when... Uh, the, the the UK Treasury Select Committee started hearing uh, evidence from various people involved in this in the summer of 2019. Two members of that Treasury Select Committee, so these are two MPs, um, had to put their hand up at the beginning, I think it was about 10 people in the committee, had to put their hand up at the beginning of the meeting and say, uh, for the public record, I am an investor in this fund, I am a trapped investor, and I invested via Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is uh, this this uh, intermediary, uh, foot to 100 company, um, who, who is very tightly uh, story. Um, and, and it shows you how deeply ingrained it is. I've had several conversations with family members, with friends, with colleagues, who... Um, didn't even realise they were investing in this fund. And it was only uh, when the stories broke or even having subsequent conversations with me that said, actually, do you know what? I, I, I'm a customer of Hargreaves Lansdowne. I was persuaded to, to invest in this fund. I've, I've got some of my savings there. Wow. Not a lot, but, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's so it really cuts deep. There's an awful lot of people who are affected here. I would say most of those people, it's the sort of, um, it's, the, it's the sort of, it's not life-changing if, if, if they lose money here, but it, it will certainly affect them. Uh, you know, maybe it's 10% of their pension portfolio. It's going to have an impact. They're, they'll probably lose about a quarter of that. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking life-changing sum. It's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. However, there are a, a, a large number of people, some people um, who I've spoken to, who did and, you know, were poorly advised or, or, or made poor decisions and they, they admit this, but they put a large amount of their significant savings, either their retirement savings, a pots into this fund. They were seduced. They, they were convinced that Woodford was the guy who could, who could, you know, who's an alchemist. He could, mm. he could turn their savings, you know, increase them by four or five times. And the example that I use in the book is a, is a couple called um, 
Pauline uh, Snelson and Fred Hiscock. Yes. Um, they are, uh, Pauline's in her late 60s, Fred's in his early 70s. They, um, you know, most people at that age will be thinking of, you know, having their feet up and retiring, working. Uh, Fred is a part-time uh, driver. Um, uh, he, he, and and Pauline runs a, a guest house. Uh, they live in Solcombe, which is a very pretty, quaint um, seaside resort in Devon. Um, and they they freely admit they made some some poor financial choices. But what they both did is they put their entire savings uh, into this fund. They they thought this guy was was the guy to to, to maximise their returns, and they did that. So. They've had their savings locked up for, for, for two years. They're going to be losing at least a quarter of those. For the real impact for, for these individuals, they're both having to keep working. They yes. had to delay retirement indefinitely. They don't know when they can retire. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've had money they had set aside to pass on uh, their grandkids. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not and going to be can't. able to happen now. So, so it's what the money they'd set aside. So, so this is real. This is real life implications yeah. for these people. And uh, and the ironic thing, or or, or the most galling thing about uh, is they live in Salcombe, just a few streets away from the marina, um, where Neil Woodford has a holiday home, a holiday home overlooking the marina, which he'd, he'd you know he'd done up with uh, considerable expense. Mm. And um, you know, every every now and then they see him there, and and it's just a reminder of of this sort of terrible incident that happened three years ago, which is yeah has, has had life changing. Yeah, I can imagine how difficult that is. Yeah, and I, and I suppose that was a deliberate uh, choice on your part to put on to the tagline of the book, the fate of Middle England's money, I guess. Because mm. uh, yeah. certainly, yeah. you know, 400,000 people is a, is a, a large number yeah. of people to be impacted. Uh, and uh, I guess if this was a, a retail bank, it would be probably much bigger news than mm-hmm. uh, what it is mm-hmm. uh, at the minute. Um I suppose maybe to turn the discussion back to, you know, this notion of, a, you know, an active investment or a fund, man, fund manager, a stock picker. Um, do you think that um, the, the Woodford saga has damaged that particular side of the industry? Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Um, he, um, you know, he is almost the the the. The key, the, one of the best-known active fund managers, the, probably the best-known of his generation, um, certainly on this side of the Atlantic, he um, is somebody who uh, was the 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 archetypal high conviction fund managers. High conviction is an industry term which basically, in in, in common parlance, means. Um, uh, dogged or or maybe even um, obstinate you know it's it's somebody who just who has their ideas that they are fully set on them and and they will not waver despite what all the evidence suggests which is great so when it works his, <laughs> which is which is what's great when it <laughs> well abs- abs- absolutely absolutely and and you know the, so the and, and the thing is you need that because if if, if all you want to do is go with the, the the direction of the wind, invest in a passive fund. They cost they cost a fraction of active managers. Sure. Uh, but if you want somebody who is willing to go against the grain, who in the long term, and we we should must stress it's long term, um, will outperform the market, um, then somebody who who has an investment thesis which stacks up, they are they are confident of that and they stick to that. That's probably not a bad not a bad idea. Mm. However, the is there is a flip side to that personality in that they just keep going and the 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 higher their convictions the more steadfast they stick to this 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 train even when you know everything else seems to be uh counting against them now 
Woodford had two near-death experiences in his career running up to uh, 2019. So he actually made his name 20 years earlier uh, the turn of the century the dot-com bubble mm. every fund manager uh, and this was mainly active fund managers at the time every fund manager was just wading into uh internet stocks dot-com stocks you know companies which uh, were barely more than an ip uh, in, in, in a uh, an ip address and, and 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 not much more really than that um and he could see what it was for. It was Emperor's New Clothes for him. He thought, you know, these companies do not stack up. The valuations do not stack up. Mm. There's a crazy amount of money being thrown at them. I'm not going to push my client's money into these stocks because they will inevitably uh, implode. And the, 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 the higher those valuations got, the, 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 the charging nature of the stock market as it kept going, um, lifted all other funds. And he, because he had, he had uh, abandoned them or he didn't even touch them, his fund got left behind and it mm. really struggled. And it was, it was really falling behind the rest of his peer group. And at the same time, this company worked for Perpetual, which was which started as quite a small company based in Henley, way outside the city of London. The the, the guy who owned it, Martin Arbib, was looking to sell it. And so he was trying to sell his company, but his star fund manager was heavily underperforming the market. Mm-hmm. And Woodford was getting under an awful lot of pressure um, to, to switch course and start investing in these stocks not only internally, but also from um, the financial advisors who were, who were putting money into his funds, advising his funds. They were, um, <coughs> sorry, um, they, were, uh, they, were, they, were, they were turning their, their back on him. So he was in a situation where he was being pressured to invest in these stocks. He stood fast. He, 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 he didn't do it. And then in March 2000, the dot-com bubble was pricked. All those stocks just completely fell away and people were lost, uh, left with huge losses. But Woodford's fund uh, stood the course and it, mm. and it sailed through as everyone else made losses. His, what, he had stuck to his convictions. He had avoided the mess and he carried through. And that, and, and, and that really set him up. And people thought this guy, he could tell it was a mess coming down the track. He avoided it like the plague. And here's the one smell of roses now. Fast forward a decade, it was a very similar situation with the financial crash. He avoided banks in the run up to that. He thought there were problems emerging. Um, he thought they were, uh, you, you know, he, he, he could foresee a lot of the, the the sort of financial chicanery going on in the background. He wanted to avoid that. And yet again, after the financial crisis happened uh, and people who invested in financial stocks uh, lost their shirts, he came out in a very strong position and again it it, it um, to the outside world it made him think this is a guy who stuck sticks to his convictions he's obstinate sure but actually he gets results because he can avoid these these car crashes in the market mm. and for Woodford himself it really fed his own perception of himself mm-hmm. as as somebody who who just needed to trust trust his instincts yeah. whatever the market says whatever whatever all the uh, academic papers in the economic papers he was reading were saying uh whatever his bloomberg terminal was screaming at him he if he just stuck to his core principles his, his investment thesis he would write it out and then so you fast forward another 10 years you get to 2018 2019 he's in the same situation everything is going against him um, but he is convinced about his 
portfolio about the companies he has chosen uh, and his direction of travel and he thinks if i just ride this out if i just ride this out i will come out as i have the the, the previous two occasions and this time it didn't work yeah third yeah. time unlucky and do you have any sense of how how we can square that particular circle you know it seems to be nearly a fatal flaw um and how can that how can that be maybe prevented in in other uh, organizations well i think what you've what you've seen in um in the last say 20 years or so is a cultural change within fund management so a lot of what Neil Woodford really embodied the, this this idea of a star fund manager, and this kind of developed in the sort of the eighties and nineties, where you have individuals who are kind of really promoted as um, you know soothsayers, who are these incredible these 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 kind of masters of the universe, if you like, um, where. They are the fund managers, they manage the portfolio, they make the investment decisions. And it is in individuals that we entrust our money. Mm -hmm. It's not in the fund, it's not in the wider investment company, it is with an individual. Uh, and the reason that came about is, you know, there's a couple of reasons. One is kind of, there's, a, there's an innate human um, uh, feeling that I think it goes, I've seen it, it goes back to, you know, when we we're hunter gatherers and, and we, we, we wanted to follow a leader. That's why we think about, you know, a president. We think about the president. We don't think about the Democrats or the Republicans, or whatever. We think about a prime minister rather than, you know, the, the, the party. We, we follow a leader. Uh, and so if you transpose that onto the investment industry, we, individuals are seen to want to follow a fund manager rather than a fund or, a, or, or, or an investment company. The marketers picked up on that and they, throughout the 80s and 90s, they kind of really promoted individual fund, fund managers as these stars. Mm. And, and, and talking as a financial journalist, you know, we write a lot about numbers. We write a lot about companies and, and kind of fairly abstract, um, uh, fairly abstract things. The minute you get you get told, look, um, we, we want to talk to you about this fund, but actually we want to introduce you to this really interesting fund manager. He, he or she, they say interesting things. They talk outside the box. They're quite provocative. Um, that makes for a good story because you can use these quotes. You can, it's colourful. You can bring it to life. You can talk about this individual's personality. So um, uh, that is where these fund managers were really sort of promoted onto the financial press. They they became uh, talked about a lot. They were interviewed. They were they were their, their own um their, their star stardust grew and they and their own personalities became really what these fund companies promoted themselves on the back of you know it got to such an extent that by the time woodford left investor investco perpetual and this is uh, as i mentioned you know a huge global fund management company he was as well known in the investment industry his name woodford was almost better known among investors than Invesco Perpetual. Mm. You know, he had so much star power that he was better known th than this huge company he represented. So what you had that real growth in the star fund manager culture. Now, about 10, 15 years ago, this all started to, to, to crumble away because you had, when you have an individual who, who has spent so much time getting it right, inevitably, 
there is a a kind of a, a reversion to the mean if you like when it's it's going to come back at them if they're a conviction manager they're going to have good spells they're going to have bad spells if they have a really long run of good spells you know the chances are they're going to have a fairly good bad long run of, of bad spells as well and that's what happened to a lot of these star fund managers they look great for sort of 10 20 years maybe and then they had the, the the decline period when everything kind of turned against them but they they stuck with it so you had a lot of these star fund managers crashing and burning and at the same time, you also had the uh, the, the the examples where the fund management companies who had spent years building up these individuals suddenly felt very vulnerable because they had this this key man or key woman risk, key person risk, where they'd put so much emphasis on one individual, they became so popular and attracted so much assets, so many assets from from so many investors that they could just walk out the door and take all that money with them. And that's exactly what happened with Woodford. There are other examples of this as well, but that's what happened with Woodford in Vesco Perpetual. He left, he fell out of them over all sorts of issues. He fell out of them. He decided to leave, set up on his own. And billions and billions of pounds walked out the door with him to his mm. new venture. He started off 3.7 billion. Within a few months, it was 5 billion. Within a couple of years, it was 18 billion. A lot of that money came from Vesco Perpetual. So over the past 10, 15 years, the fund manager, have really decided they want to move away from that star fund manager model because okay it brought them good headlines or interesting headlines and promoted them but really it left them vulnerable to the key person risk mm -hmm. it also left them vulnerable to when you know part of the same risk when that individual underperforms so you have seen a move away from that and i think what's very interesting some of the best active fund managers and and and, and these are really under the rise of passive funds as i'm sure you and your um your listeners will know all too too well but the what the the, the best active managers and and one example i'll give is is a scottish company called bailey gifford what they do they they are um a kind of a, a group of very um the, the, a lot of high conviction managers there very thoughtful very clever um managers who and 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 very strong performance but what they have is they have a culture where they continually challenge each other and they can it's all it's very academic the mm -hmm. way they work they continually there's no one star individual it's a lot of very good team orientated fund managers who bounce ideas off each other who will challenge each other and say you know constantly challenge and it's a good environment to foster and this was the actually the environment that Woodford stepped into in, in the 1990s when he joined Perpetual, which at the time was a very small fund manager. There's a similar, very, very good fund managers, but there was a, they had a, a, a weekly fund management meeting where they constantly challenged each other's and and, um, and made sure that uh, they were keeping their own portfolios in check and, and and wanted to, you know, making sure that what they were making the right investment decisions. And I think that's that's how you. That is how you foster that. It's very hard to get right because if you're dealing with these big personalities, do they want to be challenged? Do they want to be picked apart publicly in front of their peers? But if you can get that culture right, that is that has got to be the way forward as as exemplified by um by Bailey Gifford, as I say. And do you think that um in addition to obviously organizations moving away from that key person focus and the star fund manager focus that that's actually naturally happening anyway in terms of how people invest and their focus on I suppose ESG and engaging themselves you know investors are much more involved in, in where they put their money etc do you think that people are not blindly following fund managers in a way that might have been more common in the past and 
Everybody thinks they're a fund manager. Everybody thinks they can invest in the latest and greatest, whether it's cryptocurrency or otherwise, that actually people aren't so fast to follow um, a star fund manager to the ends of the earth because everybody thinks that they can discern what's best for them, whether it's via the internet or otherwise. I absolutely, well, I, absolutely, I think we've definitely seen those those trends coming on. People, you know, I, I think there's... There's, 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 um, it's very positive change. People are taking more ownership of their investment decisions. Mm -hmm. There's a flip side, and you mentioned the the C word, current cryptocurrencies. You know, th these are being used as a, as a trading tool at the minute. And if people get, you know, too uh, uh, too seduced by these and mm -hmm. they start putting too much money in there, you know, that personally I think is a real danger. I know lots of regulators feel the same. But it is good people are taking more personal responsibility. Technology has really helped here. The fact that you, on your smartphone, you can have apps where, as you say, you become the portfolio manager, essentially. You know, you can choose the funds you want on, uh, you know, your ESG criteria. Are you are you more of an E person, an S person, or a G person? You know, what's your kind of real interest there? You know, are you more, uh, do you have a, a, a view that maybe the next 10 years is going to be the decade of of, of Asian companies or, or, or South American companies? companies you know portfolio that way you know if you go back sort of 20 30 years people could have an idea about that sort of thing but the technology didn't really mm -hmm. help them do that they could you know choose which funds they wanted to go in but a lot of these funds were sort of very generic and very very broad and and if they did kind of go into the the the, the then it tended to get more pricey. The rise of passive funds is another way that people can sort of say, well, I, I think the Latin American company is going to have a great, you know, next decade. I'm going to put 10% of my portfolio into this, you know, uh, ETF or, mm. or, or, or this uh, index fund, which focuses on that market. And and for that, it's not it's not a huge, it's not a big cost to that. There's not uh, big fees involved, but they can make that decision themselves. So I think there's it, there is a very strong uh, positive coming from people taking those personal decisions but there is there's also that flip side sure um that there does need to be some care about whether you know they could be making those decisions because if you go back to the example of um you know pauline snelson and fred hiscock and and they made those personal decisions themselves uh, 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 themselves and, mm. and 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 so the, there does need to be a, a kind of um a, I balance. Think a, a halfway house mm. where, where there is some guidance but people are still making you know taking a personal um uh, you know, investment in their own in their own investment decisions. That's an interesting one, and I, I suppose just to go back into the the collapse itself and how it was handled, um, because I, once we knew the fund was effectively the game was up. Um, have the, uh, do you think there's any lessons to be learned for uh, uh, rega regarding how the actual fund itself was unwound? Because I think there has been some chatter that maybe uh, the interests of investors wasn't quite protected as maybe as it should be. And I'm not sure if there's been a, a kind of a, a conclusion reached on some of those uh, discussions yet. Well, this is a very live discussion because um, I've mentioned Link a couple of times. This is a, an authorised corporate director um, who was essentially the entity which when the funds were suspended in um, early May 2019, over the, the following uh, six months, they played a central role in making decisions about whether the fund uh, survived, whether it reopened, whether it was passed on to other fund managers, or if it closed. And ultimately, they, they made a decision to, to close the funds um, and to remove uh, Woodford Investment Managers as, as the, the portfolio manager and to try and liquidate those funds and, and give those money the money back to um, investors. And that's basically what's that process is still going on.
know, I kind of hinted earlier about the problems that Woodford fell into. A lot of his problems stemmed from the fact he had invested an awful lot of money in um, unlisted um, or very, very small kind of biotech type companies, science based companies, which were, you know, in, in, in investment parlance illiquid so they're very hard to sell so if, if if you wanted to quickly get rid of your your stake in a company there wasn't really a willing market to do it it's not something you could do in in over you know in the open market over a weekend you would have to go into some negotiations over a longer period and you might have to take a discount for, for selling it if it wasn't a, 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 an investment that people wanted to make you know unlike Woodford had, you know, for the early part of his career, invested in blue chip companies, which 100 companies, which are you know, very liquid. You can you can get rid of large stakes in in a day's trading. So that was the situation he had found himself in. He had this very large rump of illiquid holdings, which are very hard to sell, and the process to liquidate those funds to 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 raise money for it to get to to sell off those funds that that link has been overseeing over the past um, two and a half, two and a bit years. Um, they are still trying to shift the final part of the, the, the final part of the fund, uh, but there's no market for it because a lot of these companies have, have proven to either be duds or there's just no real interest in them. Or they're at a very early stage in development. They could in you know 20 years time be the next Amazon. Um, but at this present time, they need an awful lot of investment to keep going, as you get with early company startups um, and people aren't willing to take that risk at the minute. Mm. So what what's happened in that process is um investors in 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 the fund will it's looking like they will ultimately lose about a billion pounds of the 3.7 billion uh that was suspended so that means they're going to lose over a quarter um and there is a lot of discussion about whose fault it is uh that those firstly that 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 the fund was put in that position mm. and secondly um over the the liquidation process and whether the, the the best deals were got for some of those assets now you have at the moment a very bizarre situation where uh, from the outside you might think that the whole woodford scandal was was down to woodford as i mentioned earlier there's there's a whole kind of chain of of, of people involved or individuals in, uh, uh, um, involved in this where um you could apportion blame um now as soon as these, you know, large losses and the, the huge number of people uh, came to light, of course, you inevitably get um, lawyers, litigation, people thinking, well, that we can we can work on behalf of these investors and try and get some money back. So they started uh, a several class action uh, lawsuits started developing, and initially, I've spoken to the lawyers at all of these uh, firms. Initially, they all thought, well, the obvious thing is to go after Neil Woodford mm. um, because he was a portfolio manager. He made these decisions. He made some of the uh, interesting decisions that, that, that led to so um, to the, the fund suspensions. Um, but that got a little bit hard because actually, ultimately, um, legally, from a legal perspective, he wasn't the fund manager. He was a portfolio manager. The fund manager, from a legal perspective, was was Link, this authorised corporate director. They also thought about going after um, Hargreaves Lansdowne, who many of these individuals had been um, clients of and had persuaded them to invest in the fund. Again, you know, from their perspective, they were they were kind of offering advice or were they offering advice or were they offering, um, uh, you know, or were they just merely sort of pushing people towards funds? Um again the lawyers then switch their attention back to link and so what you do have you link is the subject of at least two or three class actions and and my hunch is that they will all join together and form one class action um 
with, with, with the the majority of the the, the investors who are, who are looking to take them to, to task and you have a bizarre situation whereby uh, Neil Woodford has offered his services and I believe is 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 helping out the class action lawsuits against Link because he personally <laughs> feels that Link closed his fund down too early, mm -hmm. that he sh he should have been allowed to continue to selling it. And actually Link sold a lot of these assets at bargain basement prices uh, when if he was in control, he would have got much better deal for those end investors. So he is actually helping the investors, his own former investors, who are suing the uh, the uh, the authorized corporate director. It's a bit of a strange situation, yeah. um, and and that's a live situation. As I say, you know those those cases um, are ongoing, and and we're watching them very closely. Yeah, yeah, and and I suppose then maybe to wrap up, uh, what about Neil Woodford himself? Then uh, he's made one or two attempts to kind of reinvent himself. <laughs> um, uh, is is redemption on the on the horizon for him? Well, yeah, Neil, Neil Woodford kind of went to ground for a couple of years. And then um, suddenly, in about two or three weeks before my book came out uh, last year, he uh, came out with this interview um, uh, saying he was back and he was going to, you know, relaunch and he was going to set up shop in um, in Jersey. And uh, this was the big relaunch. Um, you know, you could say there was there was some kind of... Um, uh the, the proximity to my book launching may have been a factor in that I, I'm, I'm not uh, going to say otherwise but um he came out and said i'm looking to relaunch uh here i am i'm, I'm setting up in jersey uh, i'm not gonna uh target retail investors you know normal everyday investors i'm gonna go after professional investors so you know institutions pension funds or sovereign wealth funds or, or very rich individuals um which made sense. But then you dig a little bit deeper into it and you, you know, the next point is, well, have you got a license in Jersey? And people calling up the Jersey regulation saying, have you granted uh, Woodford a license? And they said, well, he hasn't even applied. We haven't even received this license. And we take it uh, uh, very bad that he's announcing he's setting up here and he hasn't even applied. Yeah. And so they effectively blocked his application before it went in. So next we hear he's actually going further across the Atlantic. And now he's, he was looking to set up, um, something in the Cayman Islands and then after that he's going further across the Atlantic and looking to set something up in Delaware um, so the Woodford comeback and there's been lots of reports and rumors that him and his business partner Craig Newman have been holding discussions with people uh, in the Middle East and in, in Asia and China looking to to um, to get the business going again um, me personally I mean his reputation in the UK is completely shot in Europe. I don't think anyone's going to be touching him, professional investor or not. Um, he does, again, in a, in a very strange twist. Um, he's been employed as a consultant and an advisor to a US uh, investment company that actually bought up a lot of the um, the uh, assets in his fund, at, uh, say, bargain basement prices, and he's been advising on, on those. So, um, you know that is something he's been doing i don't know if there's that's got a uh, there's much longevity to that role you know he's he's in his early 60s i think he's like 61 or 62 now um he probably thinks he, he's probably got another five left in him but um, i'm not so the market for uh, for him at the minute okay well well i suppose it's a it's really a i guess a fascinating story um I could talk for hours. Absolutely, as <laughs> yeah. could I. Yeah, yeah. And look, we do appreciate uh, your time and the time you've you've given us to uh, to trash through some of the issues around the the Woodford collapse. Um, the the book is a is a really 
comprehensive narrative of all the events uh, surrounding the Woodford Stable of Funds. And uh, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of data out there. And you've put, you know, you've packaged that up really, really accessibly into 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 the tome. Um, and I'd encourage any of our listeners to to go out and get it. It's available, as they say, in all good book books bookshops, uh, <laughs> uh, bo- both uh, on the high street and uh, online. So it's uh, it's Owen Walker, built in a lie. The rise and fall of Neil Woodford and the money. Thank you, Neil. Our own. <laughs> only, only twice, John. <laughs> Thanks, Owen, for your time and congratulations again on Thanks. the book. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. As always, this podcast is available on all good podcast platforms and indeed through our website, fundsacademy.ie.